Um, open up your Bibles to Acts 13. Acts 13, we're going to read our passage, then we're going to pray, and then uh, we're going to start working through it um, a little bit. We're going to be in the first 13 verses of Acts 13. This, of course, is the beginning of the, the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And uh, I will admit to you, one of the reasons I really wanted to go through Acts was to see the power of Jesus on display in the mission and the missions of Paul and the early church and and how unstoppable the truth of the gospel is regardless of what the opposition is or what the problems are, how sufficient the power of Jesus is for you. Um, And as we even think about how we are involved in missions even today to be encouraged by that. So this is an exciting um, beginning of the portion of Acts that I was eager to get to and racing to get to, um, and now see if I can race to get through. Uh, so, but we're gonna we're gonna start off in the first thirteen verses. Let's read it. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers: Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to uh, Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil! You, enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to per, uh, from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. 
And on the Sabbath day, when they went into the synagogue and sat down, after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Let's stop right there. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this passage. We pray that it would encourage us and exhort us and strengthen us and and show us your power and also show us the the greatness of of your strength in your missionaries. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to be a missionary? There's there's lots of missionaries in our world, and we're very familiar with the idea of a missionary. But sometimes there's so many different kinds of missionaries doing so many different things that we might be a little confused about what it means to be a true missionary of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to look at today. We want to describe and, and, and help to define and begin to illustrate what a missionary is. This is the first missionary journey of Paul. This is the first missionary journey in church history. And Luke takes advantage of this opportunity to really help us understand um, what a missionary is, why a missionary goes out. Maybe some of you know missionaries. Maybe some of you want to be a missionary or are interested in missions. And I hope this encourages you as we begin to look at this. We are obviously not going to be able to get through the entire first missionary journey of Paul, which goes all the way through chapter 14 of Acts. But we're going to try to make a start of it today and then hopefully in a few weeks finish it. And we're going to just ask a basic, basic question, really. Uh, what does is, what is the Lord's missionary look like? What are, what are descriptions of the Lord's missionary? What, what do they do? And why do they do what they do? And how do they do what they do? And I have a question for you that I want you to think about and be ready to answer, hopefully, at the end. At the end of today's message, and it's this. Why do I need to know what a missionary does? Okay, so that's the question I want you to ask yourself. Why do I need to know what a missionary does? It's it's an essential application question. How does this apply in my life and, and how I live right now when I consider a missionary of the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, basically, we could define a missionary in kind of um, in the terms that we've learned here in Acts, right? What is a missionary? We, we see it just initially. Just The missionary is someone who seeks the, to participate in the continued work of the risen Christ. The, the missionary is one who has a, a, a vivid, faith-filled view of the continued work, the powerful, unstoppable work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what all of Acts, I believe, is teaching us. It's showing us the continued, unstoppable work of Jesus, and missionaries are, are filled with a vision of the power and supremacy of Christ in all things, and they, they go forward in fullness of faith. But let's look at our descriptions. Uh, description number one. Description number one. First description of the Lord's missionary. They are sent by the Holy Spirit. They are sent by the Holy Spirit. You see that in the first three verses um, and, and you see also a lot of things going on in these first three verses, don't you? You see that the kind of the, the center of Luke's uh, chronology of early church history is shifting, as we've seen it shift in, in Acts 11 and even now here. It's shifting from Jerusalem to 
to Antioch, the city up in Syria, just north of Jerusalem. And why is this happening? It's not, it's not indicating that the Jerusalem church is being unfaithful, that they're doing nothing. As a matter of fact, we just saw Acts 12 speak about how powerful the Lord is among the Jerusalem Christians. But, but all, all Luke is doing here is he's intentionally shifting because he wants to focus on one part of the church. And this should remind us there, was, there were 12 apostles, 13 including Paul, but Luke only wants to focus on one, and that is Paul. Luke focuses on Antioch because here is where the Lord's chosen instruments are. Here's where the Lord's chosen instruments are. And another interesting thing about this Antiochian church, it is a very ethnically and socially mixed church, isn't it, right? You, you saw the names that I was reading, and, and Luke makes special emphasis of where all of these men come from. For example, um, Barnabas, we know he came from Cyprus, the island of Cyprus itself. We learned about that early on in, in Acts. And also, we, we are introduced to another man that appears here, Simeon, who is called Niger. He is from the continent of Africa. Matter of fact, if you have a footnote there, number three in my Bible says this is the Latin word for black or dark. So maybe he was very African-American at this point. You have Lucius of Cyrene. That's also African. And then you have Menaean, a member of the court of Herod. This man was maybe in a, in a certain high state of social prominence if he was in the court of Herod himself. And then, of course, you have Saul from Tarsus, which was a, a kind of a southeast Asia Minor, which is uh, modern-day Turkey. So you've got a church here in Antioch that is led by teachers and prophets from all over the place. And what does this tell you about the church? The church can be a very mixed place. The, the church doesn't come together because of, of the similarities that they feel to one another socially or ethnically or anything. They come together because they're united by the truth of the gospel and, for, and from a common love of Jesus together. That's what this church is. And this is the church... This is the church that Jesus begins to advance his kingdom through, particularly in Luke's um, Acts account. Now, the Holy Spirit is also central in this. He is the central sending agent. You can see that in verse 2 and in verse 4, right? The Holy Spirit is saying set apart. And then in verse 4, they are sent out by the Holy Spirit. But notice, the Spirit's call and sending does not remove the local church from preparing, praying, fasting, and sending themselves. You see, kind of, there's this, there's this, this duality here, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit is sending, but the local church is also sending. Verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. But then in chapter 3, then they continue to fast, and then they pray, and they, we, we, we assume here they do some preparations, and they lay their hands on them, and then they send these men off. And, and this shows you something. Uh, missions isn't just something an individual does. It's not just something they say, hey, I feel like the Holy Spirit is telling me to go to the Himalayas and witness to someone. It is something that is, it is someone that is a part of a kind of church operation. This is a church sending out a group of men as they are led by the Holy Spirit. And just one more thought here. Notice who the church sends. It is, it's, it's under the direction of the Holy Spirit. But notice who the, the church sends. 
They send their best teachers, their best leaders. They're not hanging on to Paul and Barnabas. They're not saying, no, 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 Holy Spirit, we think you got it wrong here. We kind of are dependent on the teaching of Paul. We can't, we can't remove Paul. No, they are eager to send them out. And this is a sign of a very healthy church, a church that sends out missionaries. Now, I want to make two applicational like suggestions under this first point. Uh, notice that God's instruments for God's work can come from anywhere, right? It's not necessary that, that Jerusalem send everybody. Um, it, it can be from random places and, and seemingly random times. And, and also notice something else. God's inst- instruments, that God's chosen missionaries that he sends, can come from anywhere, but they are always found among those who are faithful, who are prepared, who are trained, who are obedient, who are sanctified. That, that's who Paul and Barnabas were. They were well-trained men. They were prepared men. They prepared themselves, and the Lord chose when to send them out. So we, we want to hold all of these things in tension, don't we? we? We want to be a part of a local church, faithfully serving in a local church, preparing for whatever the Lord may have for us, praying that he may use us in his pleasure and in his good time. But we also want to be sending and be diligent and working hard and, and be ready for the Spirit's leading because the Spirit uses the preparation. And, and I just want to make another kind of emphasis here. They were sent by the Spirit, they were led by the Spirit, and they were strengthened by the Spirit to do this. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? What does it mean to be sent by the Spirit in your life? Well, we've talked about this a little bit in the account of Acts, but it it doesn't necessarily mean you follow a feeling. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're, you're controlled by your emotions. We need to remember that this was the early days of the church before they had inspired Scripture, but notice what they had in verse 1 of chapter 13. They had prophets and they had teachers. Where did this revelation of the Holy Spirit's will come from? It came from prophetic voices, probably among them. Right? They were people who were not necessarily ruled by their experiences or their emotions or their feelings. They were ruled by the authoritative teaching of God's word that he provided for them. They were, they were led by the Spirit, and you can be led by the Spirit, because they were filled with his truth with his teaching, with his instruction, right? That is how you prepare yourself to be led by the Spirit. You have a life that is filled with God's truth. And and we talked about this earlier in Acts, right? To be filled with the Spirit means you are under the influence of the Spirit. You are controlled by the Spirit. To be be filled by wine, as Ephesians 5 would tell you, would be meaning you are controlled by wine or controlled by those kinds of things. And in the same way, you should be filled with the Spirit. And how do you fill yourself with the Spirit? Once again, you're filled with His Word, with His will, with His desire, with His directions. You will manifest the fruit of the Spirit in your life, not the absence of control, but control. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all of these things. That's what's going to result from you being filled with the Spirit. You will seek His desires. You will love the things that He loves, and you will hate the things that He hates, and you will obey His promptings. This is what it means to be led by the Spirit. And of course, in the early church, of course, they didn't have the Word of God, and so the Spirit sometimes directly spoke to them. And it's different today, but there are many principles that we can tie over. But let's move to our second description of of God's missionaries, Jesus' missionaries. They are led by the Spirit, but also they are quickly opposed 
by the devil. They are quickly opposed by the devil. Paul and Barnabas, you'll notice in verse 9, Paul gets his Greek name. And this may sound weird to you. Did he change his name? Because, you know, Saul was just a bad name. He didn't want that name anymore. Um, Probably, in all likelihood, he had three names, uh, a Hebrew name and a Latin name, maybe even a Greek name. Um, And that was just the way it was in those days. So he starts using his Greek name on purpose here because he's going to reach the Gentiles. And and we see here in verse 4 all the way down through verse 12 that they begin to preach in this island of Cyprus. Remember, this is Barnabas' home island. This is where he maybe grew up. He possibly owned land here that he sold and donated to the local church, as we saw in Acts 4. And, and, and here we have Paul and Barnabas appear to be on this kind of preaching missionary tour through the island. I've got a slide here to kind of show you, I hope. There you go. So you see they, they, they sail from, they first go down to Antioch, to, from Antioch to this coastal city. And then they sail there all the way to this side of the island. And then they preach all their way through to Paphos. Now, Salamis was probably... Um, kind of more of a uh, center for the, the trade and commerce of the island. And then Paphos on the western coast was more of the governmental seat. So this is where, of course, he meets the proconsul and everything like that. But they probably preached through the whole island, preaching the good news of Jesus. And we see it hinted there at, at verse 5 and verse 6 that they are doing this. And, of course, they meet two individuals on the very western tip of the island. And this is very interesting to us. They meet a Gentile proconsul who would be the leader of the entire island under Rome. Um, And he is surprisingly described by Luke as a man of intelligence and interested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they also meet a very curious figure in verse 6, a Jewish magician who opposed them. And of course there is irony here all over the place, right? First off, First off, our expectations are flipped upside down because we have a Gentile, and not only just a Gentile, but we have a Gentile governmental leader interested in the gospel message. Right? That's not what we're expecting. We're not expecting that at all. Uh, and, but this is how Luke plays it out. And then it gets even more outrageous. We have a Jew keeping people from faith. And maybe, maybe that doesn't sound too outrageous to you because you've read the rest of the book and you know how this goes. But, but, but notice this. It's, it's a Jew who should be the one receiving this message about, from the Old Testament scriptures and, and this promise of Jesus. It's, it's a Jew opposing this. And of all things, it is not just any Jew. It is a magician, false prophet. What do we make of all this? Well, from the very beginning of Paul's missionary journeys, we, we see him opposed the most by his fellow Jews. That's, that's, that's who's against Paul the most. And, and I would say Luke is intentionally placing this account here. It's, it's obvious that he is only giving us a very limited view of Paul's missionary journeys. Look at all the things that he skips. He skips the entire island of Cyprus, but he wants to emphasize this as the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys to tell you something very, very important about the kind of opposition that Paul will face. And, and here in this, in this Jewish false prophet, this Jewish magician, we see a picture of the resistance and the opposition that is to come. The first thing we see about the Jewish opposition, it's, it's rooted 
in jealousy. And, and we'll see this again. I actually wanted to try to get through all of Acts 13 and 14, but you know that would never have worked out. But you'll see very quickly in chapter 14, jealousy is rooted in all of the Jewish mistreatment of Paul. And you even see that here, verse, verse 8, as we're introduced to this magician a little bit more, we see that he is opposing Paul and Barnabas. He is seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And then why it's 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 not really told why he is trying to oppose, but but I would suggest to you it is from jealousy, it is from envy, right? This man, Bar Jesus is his name, he was with the proconsul. He was found with him when Paul and Barnabas show up. He, apparently, because he was a false prophet, enjoyed a certain prestige on this island and this center of the island's power because he had made them think that he could connect with the the gods and he was a magician that could do all sorts of amazing things and he had certain prominence, position, and probably wealth that came from his position as a magician and a false prophet. And I would say it is jealousy that leads him to fight against Paul. And by the way, if you turn all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 48 or so, we see the Gentiles hearing and, and rejoicing. And then in verse 50, we see the Jews inciting women, uh, leading in high standing to um, kind of... Um, incite the the leading men of the city to persecute Paul. The Jews are behind the initial efforts to destroy Paul. And then in Iconium, in chapter 14, uh, verse 1, right from the beginning, unbelieving Jews in verse 2, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against them. And then we see all of this described further in chapter 13, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict the things that were spoken by Paul. This is what is motivating the Jewish opposition of Paul. Jealousy. He is going to take away our position. And, and I would say Luke is intentionally revealing the jealousy of the Jewish nation in this most unlikely Jew of them all on purpose. But I want to talk about that in a minute. First off, I want to just tell you about the power of jealousy to destroy your life. That's what we have here, um, hinted at by Luke. And and I think it's something I've really enjoyed uh, Jonathan Edwards' work, Charity and Its Fruits. He has this amazing chapter on envy, the envious spirit, spirit and how it's contrary to the Christian spirit. And he says this, he defines envy in this way. It is a spirit of opposition to another's comparative happiness or to the happiness of others as compared to your own. And for those of you that don't speak Puritan, let me just break that down for you. You are upset and angry when someone else has something that you don't have. You are in opposition. Notice the word. You're in opposition to the happiness of others in your life. It's a natural desire in you to be the uttermost, 
and above all others and to be above all others alone in happiness. If someone else is happy, you are unhappy, right? You are envious of another's position ahead of you. It is a spirit, as Jonathan Edwards would say, it is a spirit uneasy when you see other people enjoying their life or having something that you want or an experience that is favorable. It is a spirit that is, is naturally uneasy towards the happiness of others. It is quick to rejoice when they fall and when they fail because they can't have that happiness anymore. Envy is the direct opposite of the gospel of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God, in giving us such favor, did not give it grudgingly. He freely gave it without envy, without uneasiness, but he gave it fully in Christ. And the act of envy is the very description of what the devil did in opposing all humans and all human history. Edward says this, The devil, being miserable himself, that's the envious person, being miserable himself, envied mankind the happiness which they had and could not bear to see our first parents in their happy state in Eden. Therefore, he sought to ruin them. He said, who are these to enjoy such favor even above me? I'm not going to be their servant. I am going to destroy them. Because he envied. That is, that is the heart of the devil from the very beginning. But just to pull it back to Acts 13. This is why we have this false teacher, false prophet, Jewish magician. This is why he sought to oppose Paul and Barnabas. Because he did not want anyone to enjoy the favor that he was enjoying in the court of Sergius Paulus. And of course, this tells us another thing about the Jewish opposition, right? It's not just rooted in envy. Notice also what it is. It's, it's ruled by the devil. It's, it's from Satan himself. Um, don't jump to the next slide, sorry. Um, I think Luke is intentionally being selective, as I said, because he, he wants to, to show us from the get-go the spiritual nature of the Jewish opposition to the gospel spreading. It is jealousy, and this jealousy is being used by Satan himself to destroy and disrupt the ongoing work of Jesus Christ. And, and this is just a simple message, right? Those who are opposed, those who oppose the gospel going forth, uh, do so rooted in the desires of Satan. And there's a curious little note here in our, in our passage. Notice his name, this, this Jewish false prophet that's a magician. His name is ironic. It is Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus or son of salvation. What a name to have and to be doing the things you're doing. Luke is intentionally saying, uh, this is, this is, quote-unquote, a son of Jesus. But do you want to know what his real name is? His real name would be better known in verse 9 when Paul, now Saul, or Saul, now Paul, calls him, verse 10, you son of the devil. Remember, he was also a magician. He was a magician. And this means he was a, he was a rogue Jew. Jews didn't, um, didn't seek to become magicians, 
Uh, they didn't seek to become any of these things. So it appears that this man was maybe using some of his national history, but he was he was using it in a way that was rebellious against um, the the nation of Israel and the national religion itself. So it is an ironic person to have here. But Luke wants to intentionally show us the demonic elements of the Jewish opposition. Matter of fact, if we read in Ephesians chapter two, verse two, we see that all unbelievers, all opposition to the works of Jesus, is rooted in the power of Satan. He says, he says this in Ephesians 2.2, unbelievers, all unbelievers, including Paul himself formerly, were following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is, this is, this is where opposition to the gospel comes from. It comes from the devil. Every, every instance that we see in the acts of Jewish opposition is an instance of the devil trying to oppose the ongoing work of Jesus Christ. Just look at the language that's used to describe this man's work. Verse 8, he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This word means he, he is trying to make it crooked. He is trying to cause someone to be misled. He is trying to prevent someone from believing. This is Satan's M.O. if I ever saw it, right? And this is the root of the Jewish opposition. It is from Satan, and it leads to devil-like activity. Because that's who a son is. A son is someone that looks like his father. And it is a horrifying picture to behold. We need to be cautious of that. But also another thing about the Jewish opposition, Jewish opposition is rebuked with temporary judgment. I think this is very interesting. Verse 11, and now behold, Paul, uh, Paul says to this, this, um, this evil magician, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Notice the similarity to this man's judgment. He is going to be blind. Verse 11, he's going to have to be led by the hand, but he's going to be unable to see for a time. Now, that sounds exactly to me, by the way, like the very judgment that Paul himself experienced in Acts chapter 9, verse 8. I'll read it to you at the end of his conversion. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Notice this. I, you you got to wonder, right? When, when Paul is seeing this man being led away, he was like, that is who I was. An instrument in the devil's hand trying to oppose the continued work of Jesus Christ himself. But notice how Paul, how Paul describes this blindness. This will be a blindness, not permanent, but for a time. What does he mean by that? Why does he say it? Why does he describe it that way? Well, it seems as though to me, as though this is also a hint from Luke at the, at the opposition of the Jews. Christ is giving them a temporary disobedient, uh, uh, discipline, but he's giving them the, the discipline of blindness or trouble or disaster when Jerusalem is destroyed to point them to the one that they missed. 
to make them think and consider just who am I opposing here? When all of this judgment comes upon me, I am blind from the hand of this apostle, of this Jesus. Just who am I standing against? It's a temporary judgment to give them a chance to repent and believe. This is what Paul would say in Romans 11. Romans 11:25. he says this, Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. This is to the Roman, um, primarily Gentile believers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And, they, and, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them. I will take away their sins. As regards the gospel... They are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. And and notice here, there's going to be this partial judgment, this partial hardening that's coming upon Israel as they continue to reject the good news of Jesus. And you'll see this again and again on Paul's first missionary journey and his second and his third, right? Paul goes to the synagogue first. He is rejected by the Jews, then he goes to the Gentiles, which, which results in a tremendous blessing to the Gentiles. But Luke never wants us to think that this is a permanent judgment. It's a temporary blindness, if you will. Or or could we say it this way? Sometimes God afflicts unbelief with the kindness of judgment to get you to open your eyes and see spiritual realities right. Sometimes difficulties are in your life to cause you to become spiritually sensitive to the truths and the realities of God in your life. Because you're using your physical eyes too much. So he takes away your physical eyes so that you can see with your spiritual eyes. Well, going back to Acts 13. Acts 13, how did, what's the result of all this? Obviously, tremendous faith. Verse 12, the proconsul believed and when he saw what had occurred. But notice this, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Notice, true faith sees signs. And get serious about God's word. Notice, it's not just an excitement about signs that true faith has. True faith is excited about the truth of God's word that those signs testify to. And that is what we see here in this proconsul. Let's look at our final description of, of Jesus' missionaries. Final description. They, as you see, they are sent by the Spirit. They are opposed by the devil. But they experience faithlessness from family from from those that they would expect to receive support they receive discouragement and lack of endurance from family of all things from fellow christians that you you would think would be more on your side you you experience difficulty from them now now i get this from one verse but i want to kind of paint a picture for you really quick Uh, Paul and Barnabas leave the island of Cyprus. They travel north by boat up to the sea level marshy region of Pamphylia in verse 13. And then from there, they travel 100 miles north to Pisidia 
Antioch, which would be at an uh, increased elevation of about 3,600 feet. There's a, there's a slide here. You just jump over if you have it. So, so they have to go from Perga all the way up here to Antioch. It's not the same Antioch that's in Syria. That's confusing. It's the Antioch in Turkey. There's two Antiochs. We call this one Pisidia Antioch, and this one over here just Antioch, which would be over here, really. And they have to travel by boat up to here. This is Pamphylia. And then from Pamphylia, they're going to go all the way up here into Antioch. And there is a steep elevation shift over those 100 miles. And this is a difficult journey. And there's a small but very significant note about the struggles of a missionary we see in verse 13. Paul and his companions set sail for, from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John, who you would also name John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. It's, it's, it, it almost tells you nothing. But uh, if you have an eye to see, and if you've read Acts, you know that this is a serious departure. Well, the word there could mean left. It, it also could be more dramatic than that. It could mean deserted. Uh, John Mark deserted them. Of course, this seems to have a certain sting to it, because as we've, we've learned already in Colossians 4.10, uh, John Mark was Barnabas's cousin. And we know that this stung, because Paul seems to remember it very tenderly in chapters 15 of Acts. 1538, when they're about to head off on their second missionary journey, uh, Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. Obviously, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them again, but Paul didn't want to because he had left them, deserted them. So this isn't just, hey, uh, I'm just going to go home for a little bit. There seems to be something more spiritually discouraging about John's departure here. And, and, and notice this, how, notice John Mark's reputation follows him, right? A reputation is a very easy thing to get and a very hard thing to lose. This, this reputation will follow John Mark for the rest of his days. It's not the end of the story for John Mark. Turn to the Gospel of Mark to find out why. But there is a certain discouragement that even the believer and the, the future greatly used Mark himself inflicted, John Mark inflicted, on Paul and on Barnabas. What were the exact reasons for why John Mark left them here? We don't know. And maybe it's intentionally that way to just apply to your situation. Sometimes you will be afflicted by a fellow believer for various reasons and you don't know. Now there are some interesting suggestions about why John Mark left. Some suggest he wanted to go home to his mom in her big comfortable house in Jerusalem. You remember that house. It's where the whole entire church could meet in Acts 12. And there was a gate in the front door and there was a, a slave girl, Rhoda, who, who kept the gate. It was nice and safe and comfortable, and, her, and his mom really supported the local church. And he just wanted to go back to the easier kind of Christianity. He was kind of tired of this rogue Christianity floating around and talking to people and getting in trouble. Maybe that's why he left. Maybe John Mark didn't really enjoy the shift in leadership 
that this missionary company was taking. If you, if you, if you look at how Barnabas and Paul are described, you'll notice a shift starting right here in verse 13. It, it begins by looking back at Acts chapter 11, verse 30, when they're initially a uh, missionary team supporting the Jerusalem church. Uh, the church sent uh, to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Notice the order there. And then in chapter 12, 25, notice how it's described. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. And then notice in chapter 13, verse 2. Uh, is it 2? Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, well, they were worshiping the Lord, the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart Barnabas and Saul. There seems to be a Barnabas first and then a Saul kind of order to all of this, right? Barnabas is the one that kind of got Saul on board with the Jerusalem church. He's the one that reached out to, to Saul and brought him to the Antioch church. Barnabas was always the leader. But now, in verse 13, now Saul and his companions set sail. Well, and then you add to that the, the, the idea that, you know, Cyprus was Barnabas' hometown. But now Saul is saying, okay, let's take, this, let's take this to my hometown in Asia Minor. Perhaps that's why John Mark didn't feel comfortable with the shift in leadership. Or maybe here's another idea. The journey up to Poseidia, Antioch, was more dangerous than John Mark cared to experience. Now, you can't see it because it's kind of from above, but you kind of can get a gist of how difficult this journey is when you think about what that must feel like to walk across. <laughs> you, know, you know how maps work. The more bumpy, the worse it is. It's 100 miles, 3,600 feet in elevation rise. And on top of that, this, this pass, which is called uh, the Tartus, uh, the Taurus Mountains, is it was known at the time for having bandits. Maybe that's what Paul is referring to in Second Corinthians eleven twenty six. This was a dangerous, a difficult journey that they were about to make, and it might just be that John Mark just didn't want to do it. He wanted to go home. Or maybe he was also frustrated or anxious about Paul's weak condition. Now, uh, Poseidia. Iconium, Derby, Lystra, all of these cities are a part of southern Galatia. And so from this, we get the sense that these were the churches themselves that were, would receive a letter from Paul later on called the letter to the Galatians. And in this letter, he says something very curious that gives us a suggestion and background information. In Galatians 4, 13 through 14, he says this, Paul says this, It was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. Now, some people have suggested maybe down here in the plains of Perga, Paul contracted some sort of sickness or disease like malaria, and he needed to go up in elevation to recover. And maybe that's why as well. Whatever it was, Paul was a pathetic-looking person, and he was a burden to people, and John Mark didn't like being with him. Maybe. Maybe that's why. All we know, though, is that John Mark left, and that it stung. And for whatever reason, Mark's usefulness to Paul as his assistant in the journey was short-lived. And it would not be soon forgot, and he would be slow to entrust Mark again because of the sting of it. And let it be a warning to you. Your presence is a gift to people. Right? We talk about this often. You want to encourage me? Keep showing up. You want to discourage me? Stop showing up. Right? 
you, you, you want to encourage missionaries, desert them. Never talk to them. Uh, don't like them. Don't speak to them. Don't write them letters. You want to discourage them real fast. If you want to encourage them, do the opposite. Pray for them. And praying for them will, will transform your mind towards them. When you see them, you'll be eager to talk to them and to know about how the missionary journey and work is going. It's very often that you know, Jesus' missionaries are failed and discouraged by their own fellow Christians and family members. I remember once talking to this missionary friend of mine who had troubles. He was actually a missionary in Turkey. He had troubles and he had to come home from his missionary work because he was experiencing so much trouble with all the other missionaries in Turkey. But that's often the problem that the Christian missionary faces. And and to draw to a conclusion here, who is sufficient for these things? Who can be the Lord's missionary? This is hard. This is difficult. This is challenging. Well, the only explanation that we have is, is actually given to us in 2 Corinthians, and we were just there, but let me read this to you after Paul talks about the great, the great triumphal procession of him being a slave of Christ and being kind of like a captive slave in the Lord's procession. He asks this question, who is sufficient for these things? And then he answers them in 2 Corinthians 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not by ink, but, by with, but, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant, not by or of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The only conclusion you can make about how a missionary can be sufficient for their work is through the Lord Jesus Christ, through, through a view and a vision of their work as the continued work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and from the conviction and power and strength and encouragement that that provides. And also, with the reality that everything that Christ's, and uh, everything that is of Christ's, that he gives to you, is sufficient for every need. He's not giving you a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of sound-mindedness. That is where the Christian missionary strength comes from. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this morning, and we pray that it would be fruitful to our minds and encouraging to our souls, and we pray that we would be ones that would be ready in any way to support and encourage missionaries, and maybe even if you are gracious and chooses to be used by you to spread the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ, to those who have not heard Him yet. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.